This week in retail news, Postmates is adding retail services to its delivery platform. Meanwhile, Bed Bath & Beyond is scaling back its coupons and launching new private label brands. And this just in, Gap is planning to exit traditional malls. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, November 2nd, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we are joined by my guests, Rick Watson and Mike Schopiker. Rick is the founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting. He previously worked exclusively in the e-commerce industry with companies like Channel Advisor, Barnes & Noble Merchantry, and Pitney Bowes. Mike is the CMO of Channel Advisor, where he oversees the company's worldwide marketing initiatives. Rick, Mike, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having us. The first retailer we're going to cover today is Gap. Shares at the company rose 11% last week after the retailer announced plans to exit traditional malls and close 30% of its Gap and Banana Republic stores by 2023. The retailer says it will shutter 350 mall-based stores in North America and switch to a business model that's driven by e-commerce and off-mall locations. A spokesperson for Gap says the company is also reevaluating its European businesses and could potentially close stores in the EU as well. Rick, I'll pass this to you first. What are your thoughts on this huge decision by Gap to move away from North American malls? I think what they're doing is basically in trend in what's happening to malls in America. I would say there are probably 30 to 50% more malls than there need to be given the popularity of malls. It kind of reflects that about 30% of malls around are what's called class A malls. So you can think of it as any mall you run into that has an Apple store in it is more or less a class A mall. Not because there's an Apple store in it, but because those are the premium locations and Apple knows what it's doing. So it's kind of a trend towards what I would call an e-commerce first strategy that you mentioned here as well. A lot of the up-and-coming brands in the last five or six years, they started in e-com and then they moved into retail after Bonobos and Warby Parker are kind of the most prominent examples of that. And so this is a little bit more right-sizing from Gap in the beginning. And that's kind of where I would start from on this topic. You made a good point about how there's maybe too many malls and only 30%, I believe you said, are Class A malls. So it sounds like you are pro this strategy for Gap reducing its mall locations in North America. Do you think this will become a trend for other retailers, Mike? I think so. I recall uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think back in September, late last year, They quoted a research firm that talked about half of all mall-based department stores closing by the end of 2021. So if that's the case, moving away from the malls totally makes sense for Gap. But I think another angle here, and Rick touched on it a little bit, talking about the direct-to-consumer brands starting online and moving offline, you can think of Gap as a brand, not a retailer. So they're an established brand. They just happen to have an established offline network, which that's how they started. That's why. And so now they're taking steps to right-size that network. But once they work out those economics on the store side, I think Gap has the opportunity to position itself as a direct-to-consumer brand that's in the casual clothes business, which during the pandemic has been the place to be in apparel. During the original shutdowns back in March, April timeframe, we were looking at our aggregate data across all of our sellers globally, so thousands you know, sellers uh, on marketplaces, And we could see that casual apparel was outselling work-related apparel by a pretty wide margin. And the difference has closed a little bit. It's not as dramatic as it was back in March and April. 
but I think comfort is still popular. And at the macro level, retail has taken a hit during the pandemic because people can't go into stores, but that's in-person. E-commerce has really performed well. So this, I think overall is a good opportunity for the Gap to you know, get their store footprint figured out, focus on online business, and then take advantage of the trend that exists right now towards comfortable clothing. And Mike, you made a good point about how they really are a brand more so than a retailer in terms of how they offer direct-to-consumer casual apparel, which has been super on trend during this pandemic when we've all been at home. Do you think the Gap and Kanye West partnership will be good for the brand? I don't know which one of us is an expert on Kanye West, but celebrities are obviously selling products these days, so I'm sure it can't hurt them. Kind of going back to the mall question, I mean, a a number of brands, I I don't think you'll ever see them get rid of their stores in general. I mean, most of these brands can't afford not to be in stores, really. There are a couple of reasons. Number one is they're like, stores are the only thing that fulfill their manufacturer MLQs. So they need minimum quantities to order from their manufacturers. Stores are the only way to do that. Ecom demand is more incremental. Unless you have a business at scale, it's very hard to predict what you're going to need in the system. Whereas if you're selling to a retailer or have your own stores, you need to stock those stores. So you can commit certain amounts to your manufacturers to get your supply chain and cost of goods where you want it. I think second is new shoppers. The only way you experience a new brand, one of the big challenges with online, it's hard to introduce a new brand by itself because you become compared to everyone else on Amazon or wherever you go. So the fact that someone can come walk into a store and experience your brand means that you can acquire a new customer and have some emotional brand attachment to it. It's not a big deal for resellers that are just trying to sell things at at the lowest price or the best reviews happen to be over time. But for a brand that wants to have a long-lasting impression with the consumer, they need to have that. And then finally, from a customer acquisition point of view, stores are a very efficient way to add people to your email file. And that's a huge benefit for that. I mean, there are cross-channel benefits for that. And so I think this will hurt the growth of Gap's direct email business in some sense, because they have less consumers coming in the store, but there's probably not enough people coming into those malls anyway. Absolutely, Rick. I think you make a good point. But I'd also add, you know, with GDPR in Europe and the trends around data, I think it will become less of the expectation or the norm that as you're purchasing at the checkout, they ask for your email and it's kind of like they expect you to give it to them. Of course, you can say no, but I think it might be trending in a few years the other way. Well, good comments on Gap. Let's go to another segment on delivery. But first, I wanted to tell our listeners a little bit more about Vtex. Vtex is the first and only global, fully integrated end-to-end commerce solution with native marketplace and OMS capabilities. Vtex helps companies in retail, manufacturing, wholesale, groceries, consumer packaged goods, and other verticals to sell more, operate more efficiently, scale seamlessly, and deliver remarkable customer experience. Find out more about what Vtex can do for your business at www.vtex.com. Just in time for the holidays, the local delivery app, many of you are probably familiar, it's called Postmates, and last week they announced they are launching a new retail platform. The company's new virtual storefront will give customers access to same-day delivery from clothing, home, beauty, and wellness retailers. Launching initially in Los Angeles with plans to expand to other cities next year, the new service platform will include boutique stores like Estee Lauder's Lalabo, home goods retailer Parachute Home, and menswear brand Buck Mason. 
Meanwhile, other delivery platforms like Instacart and DoorDash are also testing out retail. Instacart recently announced its partnership with Sephora, while DoorDash has a new deal with Macy's to provide same-day delivery from 500 Macy's and Bloomingdale's stores. Mike, I'll pass this one to you first. Do you think same-day delivery is or will become the standard? I do, but this to me is one of the more interesting topics. And so I'll, I'll probably go a little bit roundabout of an answer. So, you know, I think if you start with Amazon, they've built out fulfillment infrastructure everywhere, you know, at least in the U.S. and they're doing it in other countries as well. So they're blanketing places with fulfillment centers. Right now, especially in the big metro areas, same day delivery is available from Amazon, uh, maybe a little bit more of a cost. Again, probably more prevalent in metro areas, but they keep investing. So same day feels inevitable, uh, at least from Amazon. But most other retailers do not have that infrastructure. So one way that other retailers can compete is going back to the stores that we just talked about with Gap, is providing same-day delivery from the stores. You can do that in a number of different ways or making it as easy as possible to go to the store and pick it up yourself. So buy online, pick up in store. And we've seen a lot of on-the-fly innovation in that during the pandemic. Uh, so th- those are both viable options for pretty much everyone else to compete with the massive infrastructure and capital that Amazon has. And, you know, in grocery and restaurants, that's really the only option because hot food or cold food, you know, perishes pretty quickly. However, when you look at the last mile or, you know, how do you get the product to somebody from a retail store or even through, you know, regular e-commerce, everybody wants it for free, but it's where a ton of the cost is. And so Mm -hmm. there's real cost involved no matter what approach you use. So obviously Amazon spends billions setting up their network. Not many people can do that. Delivering it yourself is an option. There's a story, you know, going to restaurants, again, in the Wall Street Journal a year or so ago, like Jimmy John's or Panera or one of those charged $3 for delivery, but their cost was $5. So, you know, they were losing money on the delivery. Um, setting up buy online pickup in store processes and infrastructure, it has costs associated with it. And then finally, to the question, using companies like Postmates or Instacart or DoorDash, those are pretty costly too. There's been a lot of uh, press out there about restaurants starting to balk at some of the high fees, you know, upwards of 25, 30% or something that they're taking from some of the restaurants. So no matter what method you decide to do, there's costs associated with it. And there's lots of talk about drones and autonomous vehicles. And maybe one day we'll be there and maybe that'll be the, the secret sauce that gets all the costs out, but it's definitely not widespread yet. So when you think about from a retailer perspective, doing a deal with Postmates, To me, if I were the retailer, looking at what's happened to some of the restaurants and what you've seen with some of the restaurants, I would not necessarily want to get myself locked into any one solution with one of these partners. You know, I'd want a variety of options and I'd want to encourage behavior from my customers that provided the best economics for me or charge appropriately the customers for that. Obviously, you need sufficient volume. With sufficient volume, all of these become a little bit more viable. But again, I wouldn't lock into any one if I was a retailer, I try to maintain control. So having said all that, coming back to the original question, I think like a Postmates or a DoorDash, how what they're doing works out maybe depends on how they interact with consumers. So I personally don't see myself going to one of these uh, delivery services and shopping on those services, you know, like Postmates and the Labo. I think that's an option. But if I go to Macy's and DoorDash is integrated into the checkout experience, 
I could see myself using that as long as the value was there for me in terms of the cost and the convenience. Mm -hmm. You made a good point, Mike, comparing it to what the restaurants have been going through with these third-party delivery services. And I like that you mentioned don't get locked in if you're a retailer who has not yet made any deals with these services. Don't lock into a single one. I think that was a really good piece of advice. Rick, do you agree? Yeah, I definitely do. I think there are a couple of... Each one seems to have its own niche. And I liked a lot of what Mike said around... There are kind of two big models for fulfillment right now. One is kind of the e-com centric companies. Amazon obviously has enough money, more money than anyone to build their own same day or next day delivery infrastructure everywhere. And so everyone else is looking for a different model. What Target has done with their dot-com site, and they're what, what number two or three in e-commerce in the US right now, is a lot of people still don't know that 90 plus percent of their e-com orders are fulfilled from stores. And many of them are fulfilled same day or next day. And that's infrastructure that they've invested in. They've acquired startups and shipped and, and some of them to live to do that on their own. And so not everyone can acquire a startup. So like that's the next tier down. Like If you're not going to build it yourself, you're going to buy a startup to do it. The next tier down is you need to use a provider. And so almost everyone else is not going to build their own infrastructure from scratch if you're not named Walmart. And so you need to find a provider to get to some kind of same day or next day shipping thing. And I kind of agree with Mike that this is something where the consumer isn't shopping directly from these apps. They're shopping from the site that they like. And I think that's less true of Instacart. Instacart is more grocery focused with Kroger and Whole Foods and, and others. And there've been a lot of discussion in the news about fights between these retailers and who owns the customer. It's a huge problem. Speaking to them, Instacart charges retailers over 30% of the purchase for, it, for its own. But if you are a, a mid-sized merchant, you're going to see Postmates and DoorDats plugins into the major e-commerce platforms out of the box. You know, Shopify right now out of the box, you can have a Postmates integration set up in 15 minutes if you want to. And then if you use Shopify's POS system at the same time. So I think this trend is going to keep increasing and it will be easier for merchants to do. And I like, Rick, that you pointed out Target. One of the top stores right now in the U.S. or retailers delivering is fulfilling 90% from stores. I think that is a very impressive target uh, for other companies to go after. Not to use the word target twice, but you know what I'm saying. It's um, That's right. <laughs> really impressive. And do you guys think that there's going to be new startups that pop up with delivery during this holiday season? Because we're already hearing that some 3PLs are denying retailers um, their extra fulfillment because they're just already packed. You know, I, I can start here. I mean, supply chain technology has been a huge focus of VC investment in the last two or three years. There's a lot of capital moving into the sector, mostly in the venture capital space. Last mile delivery, 3PLs, same day delivery, even analytics around predicting where items should be placed in warehouses closest to the consumer. Shopify bought a robotics platform in the last year, Six River. So there's been quite a, a bit of competition in supply chain and execution, not just in this next quarter, but uh, I would say even in the last couple of years. Yeah, and I think in, given all that, though, unless there's a startup that's already operating and has a relationship with the retailers, I can't see at this late date, you know, somebody spinning up out of the blue and fulfilling a big chunk of... <laughs> Uh, packages, you know, given that we're just about on top of the yeah. uh, holiday rush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a bit turn being bandied about Shipageddon that we're hitting. And so um, I think it's a real thing <laughs> this holiday. You may have a situation where it's, all right, everybody, you know, come into work today, bring your car, we're going to load it up with packages and uh, 
<laughs> They're going to turn you into a shipper. <laughs> Honestly, that might not be too far off for this season, so we'll see. And now it's time for some good retail news. Daily Paper, the Amsterdam fashion label, opened up its first store in New York City on Saturday, October 24th. The retailer has three locations now, and its other two stores are both in Amsterdam. Digital pet care retailer Chewy launched a telehealth service that connects pet guardians to a licensed veterinarian. Chewy customers can now use the company's new Connect with a Vet service to get advice in real time about their cats or dogs. The service is free for customers who are part of the company's auto ship subscription program. Let's move to the third and last retailer we'll talk about today. This one has been getting a lot of press this year. It's Bed Bath & Beyond. They have been shuffling out their leadership team all year long. It's been crazy. So they have made strides to turn their business around since the company's president and CEO, Mark Tritton, took helm last year. In their most recent announcement, they said they're scaling back coupons after they did a study of $405 shoppers' baskets, and 285,000 items. And the study revealed that 40% of their promotions were ineffective. So Bed Bath & Beyond plans to launch more than 10 private label brands over an 18-month period and will invest, this is huge, $1 billion to $1.5 billion in its business. And this will include redesigning 450 of its stores over the next three years. Rick, after struggling for several years, do you believe Bed Bath & Beyond is regaining its footing? Regaining its footing is probably accurate. Anything more than that, I don't think I would go there. John Wanamaker had a famous saying that 50% of my advertising works. I just don't know which 50%. I don't think that's unique to Best Buy or anyone. I think that's true of every single retailer and brand on the planet. Most people have some idea of what advertising is working, but ultimately, it's about testing and learning. You know, I think Bed Bath, the only advantage that they had in the past is that they were nearby. They had this membership program, which they were losing money on. And they had an extremely, extremely generous return policy from the past that they have discontinued in the last year that you could return. You know, It was almost like an L.L. Bean-like return policy for things in the past. So I think they're regaining their footing. They had entirely too much inventory in their stores. They really had no differentiator. And the, even the whole concept of Bed Bath & Beyond was created in a time where there wasn't things like online marketplaces where you can buy anything from your home and have it arrive the same day. So I think they need, need to reimagine who they are and get back to the romance of the product, have a good, better, best strategy and most across most of their product lines, rather than, you know, you go in, you see like 27 varieties of trash cans when you walk in the door, <laughs> like no consumer needs 27 varieties of trash cans. Mike, do you want to hop in? It sounds like Rick is actually a little bit more on the negative with this one. He's like, hey, Bed Bath & Beyond, the concept came around before we had all these wonderful marketplaces where it was so easy to get, you know, new sheets on Amazon in two days. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with Rick. I throw away a lot of stuff though. So, you know, I need a lot of trash cans. <laughs> but, you know, obviously the team running Bed Bath & Beyond know way more about their business than I do. I can speak from personal experience. So I just received a coupon yesterday in the mail, funny enough. And when I have gone into a Bed Bath & Beyond to buy something, I forget the coupon about half the time. Mm. But I've gone there and I think it's what Rick said. It's the location. I needed something quickly. And so I I went there to buy it. And and so I'm there. So I don't don't drive home again because I forgot the coupon. I just go ahead and buy it, which means I'm willing to pay full price while I'm in there. 
But once or twice when that's happened, an associate has actually scanned a coupon for me that's sitting behind their desk, which was actually very nice, you know, very kind of them to do for me. But it's lost margin for the business because here I was buying this thing without the coupon, you know, which I was willing to do. But on the other hand, I think the the problem with those ubiquitous coupons is that everybody knows about them and it's associated with Bed Bath and Beyond. And so if I ha- if I do make a purchase and I realize, oh, I forgot the coupon and now I'm paying full price and I could have saved you know twenty percent. When I'm walking out, I feel worse about the experience than if I you know if there had never been a coupon to begin with. So I think. The long and short of that story is that I think probably scaling back the coupons could be a good thing for them as long as they have everyday prices that you know everybody considers fair and reasonable. But the concept is pretty ingrained in, in many consumers' minds. So I'm sure it probably won't be an easy transition to get off of those coupons. And switching over to private label, which you mentioned, I think that's pretty interesting as well. I think you know, private label has been around for generations. It's, it's nothing particularly new. But I think what is new is there's a lot of retailers that have started to put more investment into private label. And, and Target, again, to bring them up, is held up as an example of this. They have brands like Good & Gather and Cat and & Jack and you know, maybe 40-something brands of their own. According to its annual report, about one-third of its sales came from owned or exclusive brands, which obviously is a higher margin for the retailer. And my Costco with the Kirkland Signature brand is another example. I think I read that's a $40 billion brand and maybe more than you know, a quarter of their revenue. And there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of retailers in that 20 to 30% range, some higher, some lower, but a lot in that 20 to 30% range, the ones that are doing it well. And so I think Bed Bath & Beyond is around 10% today. So investing to get that number up into that 20, 30% range feels like it makes sense in terms of margins and trying to you know, catch up where some of the other retailers are. Do you think it's ever too late to be starting private label brands or is it always a good time? Well, I mean, as long as they still have customers, you know, coming to their website or coming into their store, it's not too late. The interesting thing about private label is when you're in the store, whatever's in your visual space, that's what the private label is competing with. So in a store, you kind of see everything, at least peripherally. You see all the products that are there, the 27 trash cans that Rick mentioned. Online though, most consumers don't click beyond that first page. So however many search results there are, in that first page for a generic search, private label has a chance of actually being a higher percentage of those results and could theoretically help the online results from that aspect. At the end of the day, most private labels that have been successful have been introduced on the retail side. Outside of Amazon Basics and maybe some Happy Belly, Amazon has like not been extremely successful with its private label strategy, even though there are lots of people that are upset about it. Most of them have been complete failures, given that there are dozens and dozens of them and only two are worth speaking about. And so I think a retailer has a much better chance. Target is famously fantastic at its private label strategy, has a number of really great brands across all sorts of categories that they seem to promote. And so I really think that Bed Bath is kind of looking to follow Target's success in in the private label area. And to the extent that they have traffic in their stores, I agree with the shop. There's plenty of opportunity to introduce new brands for their customers because a lot of these competitive brands are at the low end and you can source them for the same place. And many times the consumer doesn't care. And if you're trying to create a good, better, best, you can come in wherever you want on the strategy. You can just pick two brands that you like and then add your own to it. 
similar cereal or clothing or, or anything in some of these stores. Mm-hmm. And I have noticed in the past that Target does phase out after a while certain private label brands and just rebrands them, essentially. So it's been really interesting to watch their journey. Totally. Last comment on Bed Bath & Beyond. What do you guys think about the incredible amount of money they are planning to spend on store redesign? I hope they can get enough traffic into the stores to justify that as the short short answer. Mm. Um, I think it needs to be part, like, for sure, the stores need to be redesigned. If you look at, like, Target's investment in stores over the past three years, they've basically built zero stores over 40,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. In the last three years, almost zero. I mean, all these mega stores, they don't want to add more of them because if you ended up in a place where a mall or whatever the location gets hollowed out because of retail distress or communities migrating, then you're in big trouble with a lot of real estate and a lot of goods. So the trend in retail has been towards smaller stores. So I think as part of a larger store refactoring, it probably makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be in that business, you should invest in it. I, you know, I think we've seen examples of retailers that did not invest in their stores and that didn't end up well either. So yeah. JC Penney mm-hmm. Sears, you know, all, all these all these folks come to mind. And obviously many of these failed for different reasons, but every little bit helps. Best time to invest a billion dollars is when you have a bunch of new capital and a new CEO too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that is true. Well Rick Watson and Mike Schepiker, thank you guys so much for joining the Retail Rundown today. I enjoyed hearing all of your insights, and I hope that you will join again in the future. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.